0: Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue our study, What to Wear. It's our second message in this series. And Paul has been addressing what it's going to look like when one walks with Christ, when one has Christ's life living out through them. This is in response to some false teachers that have been in Colossae, perpetrating kind of an early Gnosticism where Getting to know God was all about having some special revelations with God, usually through angels or some kind of special experience or special knowledge, and just took away from the gospel. So Paul is hammering about the sufficiency of Christ, not just leaving it with theology, which really the first couple chapters were about, but now he's moving into, okay, now that we have this down, this is what it's going to look like. This is how it's going to be transferred to our behaviors, our actions, and, and our thinking. So that's really what the last half of the book is about, which if you read through the epistles, much of it is a, is is structured like that, where Paul will talk the first two or three chapters, heavy theology, and the last couple chapters are this practical application, which is what we're into uh, here in Colossians. So he, he speaks of it in terms of, uh, he says, put these on as... Uh, Characteristics as as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, almost like clothes that you're putting on that He wants manifested in our lives. Now, whenever I speak, uh, sometimes it's necessary to give a qualification. Don't like to do that because I don't want to apologize for what I'm saying. But I know that there are there can be sometimes misunderstandings. Is that I'm going to be talking about our manner today. And I think some people might hear this and think that what I'm saying is is somehow we need to compromise or not stand for truth. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I think that, that we need to tip the scales a little bit the other way towards our approach to people and that we come hammering away with both barrels for truth. It's hard for people to hear what we have to say. And so what I'm trying to do is bring some balance back to this. I'm not saying compromise. I'm not saying don't stand up for conviction. What I'm saying is is that there is a balance that we need to bring. What Paul does here is he deals with, I would call it like a, a trifecta of virtues that have kind of been lost in the church, in the American church, and that is humility, meekness, and kindness humility, meekness, and kindness. Particularly for conservative evangelical churches, we don't have a hard time spelling out what it is we believe. Oh, we're really good at that. You know, we have our statements of faith. uh, You know, people know where we stand, which is why we have a bazillion denominations because, you know, we have to separate and just get with our own little tribe about these, you know, things that we, we differ on. But when it comes to humility, meekness, Kindness, what I would like to suggest is uh, we need to bring that to the forefront. And uh, I think in mass, the church and I 'm not talking about Christ's community necessarily, but the church as a whole has not done a real good job of this. I'm glad that Paul has, has brought these together in a unit here in verse 12. Let 's all stand as we take a look at this. Put on then as god 's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit might help us, that we might indeed put these on, that these three virtues would be preeminent in our lives. We come before you acknowledging that we can be blustery and sometimes we forget the need to accentuate these three characteristics. May they be true in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Brandon Cook was visiting his ailing grandmother in New Hampshire at a hospital and nearby was a Panera Cafe. The following letter explains what happened and this was posted on the Facebook page of Panera. It says this, My grandmother is passing soon with cancer. I visited her the other day, and she was telling me about how she really wanted soup, but not hospital soup, because she said it tasted awful. She went on about how she would really like some clam chowder from Panera. Unfortunately, Panera only sells clam chowder on Friday. I called the manager, Sue, and told them the situation. I wasn't looking for anything special, just a bowl of clam chowder. Without hesitation, she said absolutely she would make her some clam chowder. When I went to pick it up, they wound up giving me a box of cookies as well. It's not that big of a deal to most, but to my grandma, it meant a lot. I really want to thank Sue and the rest of the staff from Panera and Nashua, New Hampshire, just for making my grandmother happy. Thank you so much. More than 800,000 people read this post on Facebook. The next quarter, that store's sales increased 28%. The quarter after that, 34%. Now, there's no way to prove that that was a direct result of a Facebook post. But the point is, is that rapidly spreading goodwill happened because of one person. Showing kindness. I'd submit to you that kindness can have a significant impact. Now, I can't quantify it and say how much your kindness, my kindness, might impact others, but we do know it has impact. What is it, though? Kindness. It describes the kind of person we all like to be around. It describes, I think, the kind of person we'd all like to be, right? Here are some synonyms graciousness, courtesy, able to listen. Uh, goodness, empathy, respect for others' feelings, generosity. Kindness is a sweet disposition, a sweet disposition that we have towards others that leads to some kind of action, that leads us to serving. Proverbs 19.22 says, What is desirable in a man is his kindness. Now, because of the context here, what Paul is saying is that the Christian who's maturing, the Christian who is growing in Christ, will grow in kindness. In other words, his spirit will be more tender, will be sweeter as he grows in Christ, he or she. So if you're getting more cynical, more edgy, either you're not taking your medicine or you need to take a second look at what is feeding your heart. William Barclay said this, more people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. And more people have been driven from the church by the hardness and ugliness of so-called Christianity than by all the doubts in the world. Proverbs 3.3 says, do Not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Keep those two closely together. Not truth without kindness. Not not kindness void of truth. Kindness and truth. Paul adds in 2 Timothy 2.24 that... When there's cause to confront, when there's cause to deal with a conflict, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, always looking for a fight, always ready to argue, always ready to prove how right he or she is. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Listen, isn't it easy to be kind to people who agree with us? That's easy, all right? (laughs) The true test of our character is to be kind to those who are on the other side of an issue, right? Other side of a conflict. This week, after one of my classes, a student came up to me. I could tell she was very serious and had a question. And she said, I've really been wondering about this. Is is there any way to really prove that there are objective moral standards in the world? Is there any way to show that that exists in the world? We had a great conversation. But I left the conversation appreciating that she felt safety in in, in asking it. And it made me think, is there within the church honest dialogue? Or do we short-circuit that in how we approach issues? Now, it shouldn't be news to us that there is a growing segment of those within the church that are being enculturated, that uh, are are buying into the pluralism of our culture. And they are turned off by what I might call naked proclamations from churches. Uh, To these folks, volume and tenacity take a back seat to soundness and reason. Again, I'm not advocating one or the other. I'm not advocating we throw truth under the bus. But in any discussion, our first priority should be in delivering a truckload of kindness. But I'm afraid that's not the priority most of the time. It's a truckload of rightness, it's a truckload of sending people straight, it's a truckload of Bible verses. And by God, you better get on base. We cannot assume that the social issues of one generation are being adopted by the next generation. We have a choice in how we respond. And churches can vary. This comes easy. We lob verbal bombs over the wall and wonder why no one with opposing views wants to engage us. (laughs) Let me be clear. That kind of stridency, that's true of human beings no matter uh, what view they take, no matter what political stripe. It's on both sides, right? Stridency is a human issue, not one that's all the people who believe this or all the people who believe that. Conservatives, liberals alike, whatever um, uh, moniker you want to use, stridency is a human problem. People who advocate what many would consider here the wrong side of social issues can be just as strident. So I get that. But here's my point. Instead of us being dismissive with those people, instead of us lobbing names that we call these people, categorizing them, we have to demonstrate kindness. We have to demonstrate kindness. We have to fight the tendency to try to correct every thought that does not align with our Christian subculture. Kindness welcomes a dignified dialogue. But unfortunately, it is not done a lot. Unfortunately, it's not always welcome within faith communities. How do we do this? I was talking with a pastor friend of mine who offered five guidelines that he uses for what he calls dignified dialogues. And they, they have conversations within the church, anybody's welcome to, where they talk about things and welcome people to talk about these issues, whether it's gay marriage or abortion or capital punishment, whatever the ethical issue is, social issue, and people can talk about it in a dignified way. Here are the five things he listed. That each person is first and foremost created in God's image, worthy of dignity and respect. Great place to start. Every person, just because they're a human being, is deserving of respect and dignity. Okay? Next, ask questions to clarify understanding instead of only making statements. I've shared this before that Janet and I years ago, we did this thing called a 10-10 where you sat across from each other on a table And one person talked for 10 minutes and you couldn't talk at all, the other person. Uh, You could only look in their eye. You know, you couldn't roll your eyes or go, you know, you had to listen, okay, for 10 minutes. And then after the 10 minutes, all you could do, you couldn't offer these retorts or why they were wrong. You could only ask questions to clarify what the person was saying. Now, listen, when you are forced to do that, you realize how much you suck at listening, okay? (laughs) Because to sit there and just listen without interrupting, I mean, just to listen, it's hard stuff. But kindness seeks to understand instead of just trying to make sure that I get my point across. Thirdly, stick with I think or I understand the Bible to be saying instead of God thinks on every issue as if our position can never be open to correction. Now I'm not saying God doesn't speak clearly about some things, but simply that I'm a, as a human being, my understanding can be limited. I get that. I've been wrong before. I might be wrong now. I just enter into it with a degree of you know, humility. Isn't that true for any of us? I don't have all the facts about every issue. I mean, we need to be cognizant of the tenor of how we go about things and cognizant of our audience. Let me put this in a context, and I don't mean to rub salt in the wound here, but I think this is relevant. The, the Broncos beat the Chiefs this week in an improbable way. Now, listen, I am a Broncos fan, okay, and I know that that loss had to be incredibly frustrating for Chiefs fans, the way it went down. If I were to go up to a Chiefs fan and say, hey, wasn't that game awesome? Okay. I could expect to be met with some resistance. Kindness tells me that the mindset of any fan after a loss like that should not be met with bravado, with statements like, dude, Broncos are going all the way. Okay? No. My point is this, that when you reflect on how the other person might feel, you adjust your responses, right? You show some consideration. You tamp down your rhetoric. Why? Because you care about the other person. And Christians would be wise not to come off like an obnoxious fan and then blame the other guy for his hardened heart when they're not greeted warmly. And that's often what takes place in our conversations, our dialogue. Next, remember disagreement can be an opportunity to listen and learn, and not to convince, give advice, or try to change someone else. Fifthly, Honor the person's time with brevity. Give them a chance to finish their thought before sharing yours. In other words, don't interrupt. Listen. Clarify. All this are ways to show kindness. Imagine if we just practice those five things in the midst of these social issues that we struggle with. I think that would bring some healing, some help. Kindness considers the feelings of others. It values others. It doesn't doesn't rub a defeat in their face or delight in their misfortune. It doesn't rail against people because they're of a different political stripe or race or religion. It has its convictions, but there's a way that we approach this with kindness. I think one of the most beautiful pictures of kindness in the Bible is David's treatment of a crippled boy named Mephibosheth. And say that 10 times really fast, right? And David's desire was to show kindness to this young man. He was Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. Saul wanted David dead, tried to have him killed, chased him all around to find him. It ended up Saul and Jonathan were killed. By rights, by rule, I mean, David could have condemned this young boy He did not. In addition, he was crippled. He was crippled. And he takes them in and he feeds them. They're at the, the king's bountiful table. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace. Really, couldn't we say we're all handicapped by sin and yet God has been extremely kind to us? You know what kindness does? It doesn't give people what they deserve. It doesn't, you know, take delight in lowering the boom. It doesn't even try to lower the boom. We act in great kindness. Why? Because we've been treated the same by God. Next, there's humility. Paul says humility is a trait that comes in this Christ life. What humility means is that, is that we think rightly of ourselves. We, we take into consideration God's estimation of us. We acknowledge our worth in God's eyes. We don't exaggerate our accomplishments. Now, humility is not thinking of ourselves as worms. It's not, you know, refusing to think about self at all. A healthy person has to think about themselves and uh, how they fit in the stream of life. Uh, but we do, do this all in the light of, of God's worth, what he brings to the table, what he says we're worth. And then we relate with a certain security knowing that, but without the need to just elevate ourselves above others. And pride is when we do that. Pride is when we try to, you know, we get all blustery and try to elevate ourselves above others. But humility, what it brings is a, is a other orientation. To delight in discovering another person. To delight in serving another person. Proverbs 15.33 says, before honor is humility. And in Proverbs two four, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor of life. In Proverbs 27.2, let another man praise you and not your own mouth. So humility is the absence of self-exaltation. Jesus modeled this perfectly, didn't he? Remember those last hours that he spent with the disciples? You know, they're they're in the upper room. Now, if I knew that I was going to die especially that kind of a death, and I'm with my closest friends. You know what that meeting was going to be about? It's going to be about me, man. Look what I'm going to have to go through. I mean, you know, I need, I need some encouragement. I'm going to need people to come around and lay hands on me, pray. Do something, but I'm going, to need, I'm going to need you now. And what does Jesus do? Instead of talking about himself and what was up ahead, he brings a towel, a basin, and he teaches them about serving others quite a scene quite a scene Churchill evidently saw arrogance and pride in his antagonist Sir Stafford Cripps and he said this remark when Cripps walked by him once he said there but the grace of God goes God (laughs) Uh, William Beebe was a friend of President Theodore Roosevelt and he tells this story I quote at Sagamore Hill, Theodore Roosevelt and I used to play a little game together. After an evening of talk, we would go out on the lawn and search the skies until we found the faint spot of light mist beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. Then, on the other uh, one, one or the other of us would recite, "This is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is the large. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies." It consists of one billion suns, each larger than our sun. And then Roosevelt would, would grin and say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. I mean, once spanning the sky and seeing all those galaxies, now I know we're small enough. Let's go to bed. Not a bad practice for any leader. You know, you know it's time for God's light. To shine in some humility on us when perhaps we talk too much about ourselves. When we're pining for praise. When we complain about circumstances conveying the attitude that, you know, we deserve better. I deserve better. We're unwilling to admit when we're wrong. We know we've hurt somebody, but we just let them go. We're unwilling to concede a point. We're defensive when corrected. See, pride can eke out in a whole host of ways. The Moravians were a Christian movement in northern Europe that had a rich missionary sending history. And it said that when the story of the West India slave trade was relayed to the Moravians, they were also told it was going to be impossible to uh, infiltrate that slave population and to reach them with the gospel. Apparently, two Moravians heard this and they thought differently. They offered themselves up to reach these people. What was the strategy? They would go in as slaves to this population. They worked as slaves and took the lashes as slaves so that they could be beside them and teach them the gospel. Now, Can can you imagine humbling yourself to the point that you're willing to be a slave so that people can hear the gospel. How do you think these slaves responded to those two missionaries? (laughs) They were incredibly moved that they would be willing to do that. Humility, it doesn't set ourselves above others. It's willing to serve for the good of others. Meekness, it's our last term today. It's a misunderstood term today, is it not? Uh, I mean, when we think of meekness, we think of milk toast, wuss, weakness, right? Uh, it's frankly not a trait that we admire much. I mean, we admire the people who exert themselves and get what they want. This morning I got up and we had two grandchildren spending the night with us our four-year-old Ezra walks up the stairs to my office and he says, Papa, my stomach is telling me that I need a fudge sickle." I said, Ezra, you need to take that up with your grandmother, and she will talk to you about this. And what he says to me then is, I thought you were the boss of the house. Four years old, throwing it down. Those are your children, by the way. <laughs> Meekness. I mean, we think movers and the shakers, people who get something done. Some time ago, humorist J. Upton Dixon said that he was writing a book titled Cower Power. He was a humorist, remember. He also founded a group, he said, for submissive people called Doormats, which stands for Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls. And then he added, if there are no objections. (laughs) Their motto is, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody. Their symbol was a yellow traffic light. Mr. Dixon... Had a clever sense of humor. But this misconception he exploits is that, you know, meekness is a weakness. It's misunderstood. The word actually means, uh, it's also translated, by the way, gentleness uh, elsewhere. It actually means strength under control. Strength under control. Numbers 12.3 tells us that Moses, check this out, was the most meek man on earth. Now, that is pretty studly, that you could have a Christian trait set of you so much that nobody does this better on earth than you. He's the most kind, most humble, most meek, and it's in the scripture, most meek man on earth. That's incredible. So does that mean he was a milk toast? No. Moses was hard as nails. He could act decisively. But he wore the true garment of meekness as a powerful person. Why? Because he was controlled by God. Now, we saw that eke out at times in inappropriate ways, right? Particularly when he killed an Egyptian. But he mainly had it under control. Meekness is also used to describe wind, medicine, or a cult that has to be broken. And in each of those, think of this, the power of the wind to cause a storm. The power of medicine that could kill you. Or a horse that can break loose. It's power under control. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors. If you haven't read anything by him, get it. He's now deceased, but uh, Chuck Swindoll said his pen was on fire when he wrote. And you get that sense that uh, the stuff just leaps off the page. But he wrote a little book called The Pursuit of God, and he said this in it. The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He's accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is weak and helpless as God has declared him to be, but paradoxically he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than angels. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. I like that. You stop caring about what the world thinks. Jesus was infinitely powerful, right? And he rightfully could have used his power to intimidate others into bowing to him, but he never did that. He always used his power Gently teaching and loving others, inviting them to to voluntarily follow him, not in a manipulative or coercive fashion. But he's also the same Jesus who overturned the tables in the temple, right? He's also the same Jesus who got in the grill of the Pharisees. He was strong, yet meek. He was the ultimate example of. Power under control. Here's an important distinction. He never spoke a retaliating word or was vengeful towards those who did something against him. Remember in First Peter 2.21, it says that Jesus suffered and he was an example for us. How? In verse 23, it says this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I mean, the mighty Son of God was the one who, in Matthew 26, 53, answered his captors Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Remember, one angel killed 185, one angel killed 185 Assyrians in the Old Testament. So, what do you think 175,000 angels could do? but he felt no need to show off his power. He didn't get insecure, didn't get all blustery. didn't make threats. He was always under control. If you've ever washed an aquarium with soap and then put fish afterwards in it, you know that's an absolute no-no, Right? I mean, the goldfish turn into dead fish, right? And sometimes our uninformed efforts destroy the very lives that we wish to help. Sometimes in our zeal to clean up other lives, we use killer soaps like condemnation, criticism, nagging, fits of temper, I mean, we think we're doing right. But our harsh, self-righteous temperament causes damage. Eugene Peterson said this, that the greatest errors in the Christian life are not committed by the novices, but by the adepts. That's A-D-E-P-T-S. And I would say this is especially true of leadership. Leadership needs to remember to be meek. Hudson Armerding added, I'm persuaded that much of the confusion and conflict which besets the Christian church is not due to great issues of theology. Instead, it's because brilliant leaders have not been able to act with meekness. Instead, they've gained a following, and then to maintain this following, have felt obliged to discredit those who oppose them. Mm. Some truth there. Kindness... Humility, meekness. If there was ever a need for those three features of the Christ life, it is now. It is us. Kindness, humility, meekness. Let's pray.